This is the Negro League Podcast with Preach Jacobs. Gentlemen, this is Priest Jacobs, and this is the Negro League Podcast. We are brought to you by Mo Better Soul Clothing. Check us out at mobettersoul.bigcartel.com. Type in the code NEGRO to save 10% on your next order. Merry motherfucking New Year. Merry, 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 merry New Year. Um, hope all is going well thus far. Uh, my shit's been a little bumpy, but, you know, fuck it. We um, we going to make it rock. I ain't talked to y'all motherfuckers in about a couple of weeks. And if I sound tired as a motherfucker, that means I'm recording this at like 1130 <laughs> at night. This is my second time going through this. Like the first time, um, I think my computer froze. And I think the second time I was on a roll and then some dumb shit happened. Um, they got me a little irritated on uh, social media, which I guess we'll get into that in a second too. Sort of. I'm not going into too many details about that. But, um, you know, shit just threw me off just a little bit. But... I feel good, man. Um, I hope everybody had a good holiday, all that good stuff. It's it's really kind of funny because, like, the holidays just really fucks you up out of your your rotation, fucks you up out of your whatever you're trying to do. Like, you know, back in, like, October and November, I'm like, oh, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to get fresh. Like, I'm missing that bitch every day, every day in the gym. And then right around <laughs> Thanksgiving, my mom was like, who's your friend that makes those red velvet cakes? Let's get two of them. I'm like, shit, okay. And then you're like, all right, well, after Thanksgiving is done, I'm going to eat what I want. Then I'm going to go back and get back to the gym. The next thing you know, Christmas comes around. I was like, you know what? We need another real velvet cake. I'm like, motherfucker. Then it's New Year's. And it's like, all right, well, shit. And the next thing you know, you haven't been to the gym in two weeks. Um, So my goal is to go tomorrow or today, whenever you guys hear this shit. It don't matter. This is the magic of editing and recording. But, um... What I didn't want to do this year is that I, I want this to be a year of a lot of shit just dying, right? And it's like, I remember like New Year's Day 2018, it was just like, you know, I wrote this long, heartfelt, you know, Facebook message and this isn't a resolution, this is retribution and I love these people and let's blah, 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 and let's resist the system, fuck Donald Trump, put your fist in the air, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I probably believed a lot of that shit when I said it. Not saying I don't believe it now, but if you're honest with yourself, man, you know how Facebook has that thing where it's basically like, here's what you posted a year ago today. Here's what you posted two years ago today. Here's what you posted five years ago. It's like, how much of that shit is the same? Right? How much of that shit looks exactly the same? And um, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I don't want to continue to do that. It's like, man... If I see one more goddamn inspirational quote on Instagram, I'm going to have a fit, you know. <laughs> new year, new me. You must have had me confused, you know. Or the other one, I'm blocking all these people off Facebook, you know. If, if you made it to this year, congratulations. Like, don't brag about niggas you got to block, right? 
that just means that you need to be better about who you choose to be in your circle. If you're constantly blocking niggas every year, it's like, oh, okay. Say about you, hoe, or nigger. <laughs> right? Um, it's 2019, and if there's anything that we've been talking about in 2019 more than anything, it is Bird Box and R. Kelly. And my Facebook timeline has been filled with both. And I haven't watched neither, or either, however you say it. I haven't watched Bird Box, and I haven't watched the R. Kelly joint. Um, I have reasons for both. Bird Box, I just not interested. Um, it's basically what is that movie? In a Silent Place with Eyes, right? Has anybody done a Stevie Wonder meme yet? <laughs> right. Um, and then there's uh the R. Kelly joint. It's a six part documentary called Surviving R. Kelly, and it is really intense. And to me, I'm like, I don't need a six part documentary to know that R. Kelly is shit. You know. It's like I've I've had those years where I'm DJing like a a family reunion and old people ask to hear step music and you gotta cringe a little bit because you're playing an R. Kelly record. You know what I mean? It's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna act like I haven't done it. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's just it's a weird space as far as like listening to his music. I've never been a fan of it. I'm talking about from the perspective of like doing a party and like you got old women asking to play it. You know, and um. It's like I didn't watch it because it's like I don't need to watch the Titanic to know that the ship sinks in the end, you know. But I do support people that are speaking up. I do support the victims. I do support um, anytime there's an ability for people that were once silenced to have an opportunity to speak. Like, I support that. Um, it It's really weird, though, because after the documentary, the people that I saw saying, fuck you, I'm going to listen to this R. Kelly as much as possible, as much as I want, blah, 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 with the women on my page. You know? And it's weird, because it's like, there's this book, and I forgot the name of it, but like, the, the, the point of the book was basically talking about how we are in the platinum age of information, right? Like, never has it been a time where we had so much access to information. And theoretically, that's how it's supposed to get it. Every day. So every day you're supposed to have more information and more access to information, you know, theoretically. But the book basically says that the more we are um, exposed to limitless information or great detailed information, the less we're able to do stuff, right? So, like, back in the day, like you say 100 years ago, not everybody had access to all this information all the time. Um, But... You focused and honed in on a skill. You were like, all right, well, I'm a carpenter or I'm a mason or something like that. Um, I have like this reoccurring dream that like I'm in a hospital having some type of surgery, <laughs> right? You know, they give you like the sleeping gas or whatever the fuck and you pass out, but somehow they didn't give you enough and like you're still kind of like awake a little bit and you hear a doctor with your chest open saying, oh, fuck, I don't remember how to do such and such with this surgery. And you hear somebody say, like, pull up a YouTube video, right? Everything you want to learn how to do, there's a YouTube video. Change your tire, YouTube. Change your sink, YouTube. <laughs> Put on a toilet seat, YouTube, you know? And, and in some regard, I think that's really great. I think that having access to that information is amazing. And I think that the problem is people have access to this information, they don't know how to use it. Or they take it for granted. And I wouldn't even say they take it for granted. I think... In order to take something for granted, there has to be a time where you once appreciated it. And I don't think this generation of information, people appreciated it. I just think they just kind of just like, eh, whatever. You know, like I give you an example. 
I was looking at like a, a Facebook feed and it was this post that said, Angela Bassett makes history by being the first female Autobot in a Transformers movie. I'm like, word, word, that's that's history. <laughs> right? Are we are we calling being the first female Autobot in a Transformers movie history? Was it the first time somebody did something? Possibly. Like, if I play one of my songs right now while jumping on one foot and my hands in my pants, I might be the first person that did that to my record. That doesn't make it history. <laughs> right? Like, it makes, like, sports commentary so fucking annoying. It's that the whole thing about the whole debate shows, it's just like it's niggas debating for two hours. It's like, how are you going to debate about something for two hours? Not saying it's impossible, but... It's niggas like having to have a strong opinion about shit that you shouldn't have strong opinions about, right? Like it's really silly to me. And so you end up having these conflated debates that are information based. Not saying information is bad, but like it's it's like people don't know how to utilize it. So you'll you watch like a, a, a football game and it'd be like, This is the first time a quarterback with three syllables in his last name at age 24 and 13 days with a kinky hairstyle and a perm in his beard <laughs> that threw for two touchdowns while being left-footed or pigeon-toed, whatever. And that's what's been coming, what's passing as information. It's that you take this information, but it does nothing for me, right? And I think that's the other side of it. It's like whatever we do with the information, it's one thing to just spew it. It's another thing to be able to have some purpose behind it, right? And and this is kind of how I how I compare this to the R. Kelly thing, and this is what gets really, really frustrating, right? Is we've been on this R. Kelly shit for years. I mean, if we if we want to be honest about it, even the Chappelle shit, the Chappelle show came out 15 years ago. He made the Piss On Me song the first season 15, 16 years ago. And and I'm just as guilty. We all laughed at it. I mean, as funny as it was, this nigga peed on a 14-year-old girl. And we laughed at it. We laughed at it. Right? Now, when we talk about the information age, it's great now. But even back then, the tapes are circulating. People... People couldn't deny that this stuff happened. But the conversation changes that this isn't like we saw the documentary and we're just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize Archelo was a terrible person. And it was basically, oh, my gosh, we already knew this. And people still support him in droves to the point where his, his Spotify spins went up after the documentary. And so I say that to say the conversation changes when it's not a situation of you enlightening people with something they don't know, it's basically saying that when people still listen to it, that meant that they knew about it and didn't care. That's the conversation. The conversation isn't whether or not we believe the victims. Because I, I feel that it's believable, right? The question is, how do we get people to care? That's the conversation and that's the nuance that I don't think people are realizing. That's that's it. We how long we've been talking about this Aaliyah shit with R. Kelly? How long we've been talking about the piss tape? How long how long we've been talking about it? And 
R. Kelly do a concert and it's full of women. Ironically enough, full of women in the audience. So there's a nuance there that's kind of like, ooh, right? Um, it's crazy. But hey, that's 2019. Bird Box, R. Kelly. Um, what else is coming? NFL, like Super Bowl's coming soon. Kaepernick still hasn't played, but I don't think people care anymore. Um, yeah, I don't think people care anymore. And that's not an insult. I just think that, you know, the league has been kind of on track with, like, the games this year. Like, last year, I think um, the Kaepernick story was the biggest story. I think this year is like, oh, my gosh, Dallas is in the playoff, and they won a playoff game, you know. So I think the talk in the league has changed a lot. Um, and I don't think that's surprising either. And I feel like what I really want to do is just disengage from everything, right? Like, the weird thing about the information age, and we have all this access to it, is that especially being an artist, right? And speaking of being an artist, I have a song I'm going to put at the end of the podcast. My new joint that I did with Tall Black. I hope he's doing well. Um, hope y'all enjoy the record. It's also on Spotify. It's on iTunes and all that good shit. So if you want to buy it, great. If you want to stream it, great. Um, it's on Bandcamp. I appreciate it. Um The approach is basically weird. It's like, as an artist in social media, we are forever striving for the approval of strangers. And that becomes... A lot, right? You put a record out. If nobody listens to it, you feel like a failure. And then you ask yourself, why am I looking for the affirmation of people that I don't know? You know? Like, it's a weird space to be in. And I'm in it. I've been in it for a while. So it's like, to, to control that flow of information is very important, right? It's like, you know, and it's contradictory in a way because it's like I do shit where I want people to pay attention. Like, I'm, 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 I'm hoping I'm not just sitting on this fucking microphone talking and I'm the only nigga listening to it. <laughs> right? That's where faith and artistry, artistry kind of come together where you're just like, I just hope that people will fuck with it and something will happen. Who knows? Um, shit. But it's a lot, right? Um, but outside of that, man, it's been a, a crazy couple of weeks, man. I, I I got stuff I want to plan in 2019. Got some um, pop-up shops coming up for the clothing line, More Better Soul. Uh, got some shows coming up. Got some events coming up. Got an art show coming up in February. And uh, for anybody in the Columbia, South Carolina area, if you follow me on all my social media stuff, how ironic, right? <laughs> I'm getting off of social media. Follow me on social media. Like, that's it. Like, you know, I do it without even thinking twice about it. But it's Preach Jacobs on uh, all social media shit. Um, I don't know where to go with it, right? It's like, what do we do with this shit? Like, is it a necessary evil to have a Facebook page, to have an Instagram page? I don't know. But I just don't have the energy, man, for anything. I don't have energy to argue with nobody. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't. If I have an opinion, I'll write it out or I'll put it on here. But other than that, I don't feel like going back and forth with anybody on anything. <sighs> um, 
I don't think there's much else I want to say for this intro, man, because I, I feel like me and um, because I haven't done this portion yet. Usually, when, like when there's an intro, like you know, the the second half is already recorded, but I haven't spoken to J, I haven't spoken to J Live yet. I'm supposed to be calling him tomorrow, um, so I'm hoping that he has a lot more cool shit to say than I do. But um, once again, at the end of the podcast, we're gonna have the new record that I got called "Gifted People," produced by Tall Black Guy. Um, shout out to Aretha Franklin. I have a great sample from that. Thank you, nobody for running in and like stopping this shit from <laughs> being put on the platforms or anything like that. But um but yeah man, I, I I'm gonna try to be more consistent. The new year is here. So hopefully there's not gonna be any more two, three week hiatuses with this bitch. But um yeah, yeah, we're gonna go in in this bitch and, and make this stuff work. Twenty nineteen. Thank y'all so much for listening. Uh conversation with me and Jay Live coming up next. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Negro League Podcast. Once again, I go by the name of Preach Jacobs. Thank you guys for listening. We are also sponsored by More Better Soul Clothing. Go to morebettersoul.bigcartel.com and type in the code NEGRO to save 10% on your next motherfucking order. Um, we are here. We are back. As I said earlier, we have my man, my main man, Jay Live here. Talk to the people. Peace. What's up, man? What's going on, man? Happy to be here. Shout out to Mo Better Soul. What's up with you, bro? Man, I'm good, man. Merry New Year, as Eddie Murphy said. And likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so I got something. I got something weird that I'm thinking about. Right? It's like okay. To kind of just jump into it. It's like there's so many eras of hip hop that's kind of like coming in, and like one of the things that I, I like to talk to people about is that when everybody gets really frustrated about the new era of, of rappers that are coming in and, and we think a lot of it sucks, which technically we should because I'm in my 30s. Like, these little 18-year-olds, they shouldn't be making shit for me, right? Uh-huh. My, <laughs> my, my theory is this, because I never paid attention to it at that time, but it's like uh-huh. I grew up on Wu-Tang and stuff like that, you know, because I was a teenager. But okay. there's a part of me that feels the old guard in the press back in the day did they respond to people like Wu-Tang the way we respond to Takashi 69? Were there like people like, man, what the fuck is a Wu-Tang clan? <laughs> what the fuck is a is a you know a, a 36 chambers? Like, was that something that happened that you think that you can remember like the old <laughs> niggas thinking that like all that old mathematics shit that, that we love now was just weird? Well, that's not out? old. Well, you know mathematics what I mean. ain't old. But you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can say this. Um, and there's a bunch of different axes to approach this, mm-hmm. but the two things that are definitely true, one, we are looking at Takashi 69 and XXX Tentacion and Lil Pump and that generation as a generation old enough to be parents. Okay. We got to understand that first, because when you understand that, and you think back, when I was listening to Slick Rick, fast forward when I was listening to Wu-Tang, my parents had no idea what I was listening to or what it sounded like. Fair enough. I was listening yeah. to my headphones. I was listening amongst my friends. I was listening, you know, away from them. And they had no interest in hip-hop as a genre. So the awareness level was null and void. Yeah. So my mother would know about MC Hammer and Luke and <laughs> Nella Ice. Yeah. And that about it, <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? And like, while she might cop, you know, she might get me a De La Soul tape for Christmas, she's not listening to what De La Soul is talking about. Yeah. Now, combine the fact that we're a generation of hip-hop raising a generation of hip-hop. 
Mm-hmm. Combine that with the fact that technology accelerates what already exists. So in other words, um, to the degree where I thought you were going to take this question when you first crafted it was, is there the same response to Wu-Tang as Takashi 69 just in the terms of well, yeah, the criminology kind of, aspect? Well, I wasn't talking about the criminology, but I guess that's a good approach to it. That's, I'm just thinking you know what from I'm the saying? perspective. But like, if you think about that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, <clears throat> my thing about curmudgeons of today is there's nothing happening in music right now that wasn't happening in the music that you grew up on that you're lionizing and idolizing and, and golden era and canonizing. Yeah, agreed. The difference is your perspective has grown through the prism of loving the same kind of music. Okay. So, like, you know, if you got gospel hating on blues, if you got blues hating on jazz, yeah. if you got... <laughs> You know, jazz hating on funk, funk hating on disco, disco hating on hip hop. Yeah. Hip hop hating on hip hop. <laughs> so this is the first time that that the music of a people has kind of lasted more than a generation in terms of progression. And not that's not to say that all of those other musics haven't lasted. That's just just to say that people that grew up hip hop are raising people growing up hip hop. Right. And it's it's weird. And like, right? oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you you kind of had to split if you notice amongst the youth, like the the age the age divide almost became a divide of rap versus hip hop because so many hip hop heads were like, "Well, this ain't hip hop and that ain't hip hop," and yeah. the kids were like, "All right, well then, fuck it then. I ain't hip hop. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be rap." <laughs> yeah, and you and then and then the grown folks had to step back, like, "Wait, wait a minute. We want you to be hip hop. We just want your hip hop to reflect the values we're trying to instill as you in, as parents now." But us parents have to recognize that these same values that we're trying to instill, mm-hmm. they weren't lost on us listening to the same kind of hip-hop that they're listening to. Yeah. Which, regardless of what you want to say about the craftsmanship of it, the content hasn't really changed that much. At all. And like, if, anything, if anything, I always joke, the content went from, <laughs> you know, you have a whole generation of drug dealers complaining about a whole generation of drug users. And it's like, why? Well, what did you think? Was yeah, you, you're responsible <laughs> for it, right? It's... It's it's yeah. it's weird because it's like you know I'm working a record store and you get to see like rock fans they can pass that torch of the shit they grew up on casually they're like hey my son he discovered Pink Floyd today he discovered the White Album you know what I mean and there's certain mm-hmm. moments of that in hip hop culture where I see somebody pulling out you know uh, a, a Tribe Called Crest record or something like that but right. but all in all there's never that that level of of passing the torch of hip-hop that I see on a massive level as it was back in the day. Maybe that's starting now because I feel like a lot of stuff kind of falls in a 20-year uptick. Like like when Snoop came out in 94, when I first started seeing him, like 93, 94, whatever, he was like the most hated guy ever. 20 years later, oh, man. 20 years later, <laughs> he's baking bread with Martha Stewart. <laughs> you know what I mean? I personally, as a hip-hop fan, I used to blame Snoop for the demise of content. Mm, how so? And this was back when I was like, and like, you got to understand, I'm talking about myself in terms of really having to grow out of a certain kind of militancy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because I was very self-righteous coming up. You know, like, I wasn't, I, mean, I was still listening to everything, but as an artist, I had a certain certain value set 
that I grew up on between, you know, Public Enemy and KRS and the Juice Crew, right? Yeah, yeah. And certain values, you know, from Native Tongues and Jungle Brothers. So certain certain ideas about Black Pride and what's constructive and what's not constructive in my formative years. So, like, I listen to Doggy Style <laughs> and The Chronic to a lesser degree. Yeah. And was like, I remember being in a record store on 110th Street in Lexington Avenue. I remember vividly and hearing to all my niggas and my bitches and my bitches and my niggas throw your motherfucking hands in the air. Yeah. And thinking to myself, okay, cursing, fine, whatever, who cares? Mm-hmm. Degrading the black woman, there's a, there's a yellow card. <laughs> yeah. You know, promoting the use of the word nigga, for me, that was a red card at the time. I still don't really use it like that. I'm just, I understand now, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, this is because, I don't know, maybe, I wouldn't even chalk it up in terms of how my mother raised me, but just more like what I've seen growing up and what I felt like would be constructive and what I felt like wouldn't be constructive, right? Yeah. My thing was like, yo, it's one thing for this to be underground, but for this to be the mainstream, <laughs> yeah. that means... You know, this is what the kids are going to be rapping with their Walkman on, oblivious to how loud they are on the bus with the old people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I, I, was like, yeah. I was like, for me, that was like, all right. And I guess it's kind of like, all right, when I talk to my kids to this day, you know, I know my kids listen to music with all kinds of cursing and sexual content, and I don't worry about it because they know they can talk to me about anything, and we've had those discussions and I know where their heads are at and I know where their bodies are at. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, but when I talk to them about etiquette and decorum and manners and how to conduct yourself, we have an understanding as far back as, you know, late elementary school, early middle school, where it's like, look, I know kids curse around each other because when I was a kid, I used to curse around fellow kids. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I know grownups curse around each other because I'm a grownup and I curse around, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and I curse all day. But here's the thing. It's kind of like a mafia rule. Kids don't curse in front of grown-ups. Grown-ups, at least this kind of grown-up, doesn't curse in front of kids. Absolutely. Unless I'm really mad so they can understand just how serious it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I but I do you, that. I, I, I do it very funny. strategically. Like, if you if a kid is hearing me curse, mm-hmm. that's that's their signal to know, oh, shit, something's yeah. really bad. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> you, know I'm tell you something funny. I, I, did a one-man, <laughs> I did a one-man show here in South Carolina, and the show was called uh-huh. uh, Black as Fuck. And it was like, you know, it was it was like it and the, the poster said black AF. And my mom, right. when I showed it to her, she's like, Black Air Force, what is this? I'm like, Mama, it's not black Air Force. <laughs> but she came to the show and I joked at the beginning of the show where I was just like, you know, the the definition of black as fuck is being 33 years old and afraid to curse in front of your mom. And that was the first time my mother ever saw me curse like that. And and right. and since then I've never done it since. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just something right. that that's just been instilled in me. And my and my friend and I was talking about this, right? We we're talking about the Snoop sh- shit. And I remember, you know, as a kid, you know, steamrolling doggy style CDs and then, you know, art imitated life with murder was the case. And my friend right. and I, we were talking about it and we were saying like as much as we would side with the hip hop music, yo, like <laughs> See, the Lois Tucker was right. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah, there was like a. That, um... <laughs> you feel me? Like, yeah, no, I get it. I get what she what she was trying to do. Yeah, it's just the way she went about it. Because, like, 
really what it comes down to, and I feel like I need to, as a point of clarity, point out that, you know, I was then and still am a Snoop fan. Absolutely, yeah. But I had a problem with the societal impact and the implications of music so, quote-unquote, taboo becoming so mainstream. Yeah. And it kind of proved it kind of proved right, and you know historically, just because of where we at right now. Like it's it's still it's still anti censorship, but at the same time, it's also you know like my thing has always been all I really want from the mainstream is balance and representation. Fair enough. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like like almost like every other oppressed aspect of, of society, all they really want is balance. Equal opportunity and equal representation. But that was you know the thing. Saying? That was a thing growing up, where you know I would always say when I would do interviews that I'll never go against an artist being able to to talk and say what they want. The difference is yeah. when I was growing up, I I heard Public Enemy at the same time as I heard NWA. Mm-hmm. Same time I yep. heard Beastie Boys. Same time I heard Tribe. And so yep. so like I was exposed to all of it. And what's happening right. now is. All the all the children that are when they're exposed to certain stuff is just one type of shit, and that right. was the thing that kills me is that hip hop needs to have the ability to be as weird and diverse as other genres. It's like you know when if if Marilyn Manson come out, nobody's gonna say, "Man, that nigga ain't the Beatles." You know this ain't this ain't real rock. Right. You know what I mean? Like people right, have right. people have the ability to be. As weird, as good, and as bad as possible, and that's that's yeah. where true equality comes from: is your ability to to be able to suck just like everybody else, and, and have the freedom to do it. Absolutely. So, so, yeah, so, and then like, not even, not even just. I, thought, I kind of lost my train of thought mid idea, but you know the the fact that I used to say that in every interview, like I grew up on Red Alert and and, and yeah. Tuck Chill Out and Molly Mall. Where you would hear Kwame, and then you would hear Ghetto Boys, and then you would hear NWA, and then you would hear uh, um, Poor Righteous Teachers, and then you would hear Nice and Smooth. And it's like you get every different brand. You get all 31 flavors. And it's like the more commercialized it got, the more it became an assembly line of what's going to get the most for the ad money. Mm-hmm. And they picked up the, you know, it became survival of the most profitable and then you ended up with only one or two or three types of things that you would hear on the radio. When did when did and, when did that conversation change? Where I I think I have an idea, um, but I, I'm interested to see what you think about this. Is that at some point in time, like when I was growing up, like and I would read the source, that mic rating was my shit. So it's like I remember Illadef Half Life right. four and a half mics and and Raekwon mm-hmm. four and a half mics, Nas five mics. We never gave a shit about how many records something sold. When well, did that shift yeah. happen in hip hop? Here's the thing. The thing about when something becomes lucrative and profitable, when money gets involved, mm-hmm. that's when it gets political. Money makes things political. And when bad music started selling mm-hmm. based on marketing and marketing dollars, then the meritocracy of skill and talent was replaced with the meritocracy of budget and marketing. Mm. And 
that happens gradually over time as a, as a genre picks up steam in the in the popular culture. And the fact that hip hop is such a so I mean hip hop is such a dominant force in not just popular culture but just like world society. People don't really give it the credit it deserves because they don't take it seriously because of where it came from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean like my man Digger, Dow Digger Branch, he he said something that I I always take with me. He said um they use music to sell everything but music. <laughs> Meaning, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And like when when I saw him say that, it, it really stuck with me because there's no commercial, there's no movie, there's no clothing line, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And Jay Z even said it's like you know we make the culture and we keep giving it away. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it's like to that degree, when you look at what a corporation that doesn't have any stake in the artistry or the culture of it, but has all the stakes in the profitability of it, what they will do to influence and determine the shape and direction of that culture and that art for their own benefit. And the artist alone has to kind of go along in order to make a living and survive and, and do the things that they want to aspire to do. That's just what happens when the money, you know, when you, when you, it's always a constant struggle between art and industry. Yeah, it's almost like positive and negative, and that's not to say that there's nothing positive about industry or nothing negative about art, but you know the dominant traits of each. You know what I'm saying? So I think to try to draw a line in the sand or or a, line, or a timeline as to when it happened, it was doomed to happen from the from its inception <laughs> because yeah. it's what happens to everything. But it happens to everything. And as long as you're cognizant of it and aware of it, you can be an informed consumer. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, being an informed consumer is like the, that's that's the most important aspect of any art. Like if uh, if 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 the history is only going to be told by the top forty charts, then we're already at a loss. Yeah. But we know that regardless of the top forty charts, there's always going to be griots and, and storytellers and historians and documentarians that'll say, no, what about this obscure avant-garde thing? What about this very rare gem, you know? And, like, the same way... Oh, that's the the point I wanted to make earlier was when you were talking about do we carry on our old school to the next generation, Mm -hmm. part of the reason we don't is because of the economics of sampling. Or, because, like, if it wasn't for sampling... How many of these rare issue 500 record pressed, you know, mulatto of Ethiopia, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like how many, how many of these rare grooves and breaks would, who, with artists that are touring off of the fact that people know would, you know what I'm saying? Like, like we made that happen. Yeah. Like that, no, we wasn't, we wasn't checking for breaks unless we had use for them. Yeah. And hip hop put use to those things. You know what I'm saying? To where, like, to this day, you got reissues of music that would have been lost and forgotten if it wasn't for the fact that it was sampled. So fast forward now, with nobody sampling, you've literally crumbled that bridge between old generations and genres of music. And because there's such a demarcation and production style between sampled music and, like, this kind of five-minute Casio beat type stuff, um there's a big divide between styles to the point where like the minute you hear a sample, unless it's done 
in a nuanced, new kind of way, you kind of associate it with old. Yeah, and that's the thing. And it's too. like I, <laughs> it's it's like I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and <laughs> and and I love RZA, but there was this there was this uh this freestyle RZA did on uh on Funk Flex, and it was just it wasn't the best. And my friend was just like, "What happened to RZA?" And I said to him, "Well, Bobby Digital happened to RZA." And, and, and he's like, why? I said, because, you know, when Wu-Tang put all this shit out, there was this obscure hip-hop group that nobody figured was going to do anything. Then all of a sudden, when they're selling millions of records, all these people came out of the woodworks, and they sued either RZA or they sued Loud Records. And then there was this moment where RZA was just like, fuck that, I'm making beats on a keyboard. And, right, and, and why not? And that's where the South came in, where there was a lot of Southern hip-hop that wasn't heavily sample based. You know, I love organized noise and outcasts. Those were musicians and they grew up in the church. So it was less right. about samples. It was less about samples and about that thump, that feel, where it's like the South, you have the ability to thump because niggas gotta have cars. And in New mm-hmm. York, there's a nod factor to a lot of New York rap because you're on trains and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Where it's like the yep. idea of driving with a fucking trunk rattling is a specific yep. Southern thing that I never got when I was in New York because who the fuck has a car? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm wondering this, and right? Someone? I, I uh-huh. remember, you know, thinking about sampling and chopping. The first time I heard your record was on, um, I had a cousin. I used to love stretching my beat but we couldn't hear it. So I had a cousin mm-hmm. in New York. He would record these joints on tape and send them to us. And... And he never wrote down the name of the artist. I heard, I heard bragging rights, and I didn't know who the fuck you were. And then mm-hmm. maybe about this might this had to be ninety seven. DJ Premier put out this mix CD. Yep, uh, hip hop one hundred and one. Yes, and your joint mm-hmm. was on there. So that was wow. That's twenty two years ago, if my mm-hmm. math is right. Something like that. What what has changed? that makes it difficult for you to, not difficult, but like what's changed that you see is a total difference 22 years ago now that's a pro and what's a con of, of what's going on right now being an independent artist these days? Um, well, that's a lot because the pros and cons, see, I have to, yeah, I got to look back on my whole career sociologically, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to the degree that you know, some of my contemporaries at the time have gone on to do much, much bigger things. One asked the question, all right, well, where did I go wrong? Mm. And then to the degree that so many artists in the same position as me fell by the wayside and didn't make it, I asked, all right, where did I go right? Yeah, that's what right? I say. Did you, did you think you went wrong? I don't think that, but yeah. Well, it's all relative. It yeah. really depends on your your, you know, the degree to which you have uh, a sense of self-entitlement, mm. which I had to shed over time. And that, that just kind of comes with, with experience and, and growth. But I wouldn't say there's places I went wrong, but it's, it's almost like, like when you look back at the road that you chose, now knowing the whole map and what each road would have led to, it's like, oh, okay, well, this would have happened. Maybe this would have happened differently. Maybe that would have happened differently. You can't second guess it. You can't stress it or regret it, but you can learn from it and grow from it. So, like, for example, I signed the Payday Records with the option of signing the Ruckus mm. at the time. Wow. Before any of, like, the Black Star, Quali stuff yeah. blew up. 
So what would have happened? You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, it's kind of like, but what if, you know, what if, what if the Sonics would have drafted Greg Oden? Yeah. And uh, and uh, and the Blazers would have drafted Kevin Durant. Uh, would or, Seattle or, have moved? <laughs> or Blazers didn't fucking sign Sam Bowie. Sam Bowie, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. But then the thing is, like, like you can't worry about shit like that. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Because I remember the reason the reason I did what I did at the time was because I looked at the landscape and I was like, okay. Payday has OC, mm. Jay Ruta Damager, mm. Showbiz and AG. They're lockstep with the kind of music that I'm trying to make. And they have a proven track record of, of doing well with that kind of music. And mind you, I'm 1920, basically looking for the biggest check possible while I'm in college. And wow. none of it none of it matters. I'm playing with house money. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, no, you, you nine times out of ten, I'm gonna make that same decision. You know what I'm saying? But or, I mean, there's a bunch of those that I can look back career-wise. But then sociologically, I say to myself, why wasn't I better promoted? Mm-hmm. And the answer, as far as I can tell, is I own my masters. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word. Like, I licensed my albums to different labels, different indie labels, from Coup d'etat to BBE to, to a lesser extent, Ryko. But, like, with those records... I own my masters, but the thing about owning your masters is, okay, now you've given whatever label a decision, especially at that time with how much are they going to spend on marketing and video when they're not going to have this in their catalog, but for seven, 10 years. Yeah. So it's no upside. And I think that's what hurt me in terms of like, you know, the initial push determines the long-term value to begin with. Because I wasn't really all up in the videos like that, because I wasn't on Rap City and MTV, mm-hmm. all of those artists that were are now touring for people in their 30s and 40s that grew up on that. Yeah. And they have that advantage to where I'm looking at it like, okay, they're touring off of those records. I don't know how much they're making as far as royalties off of those records and streams off of those records that these major labels still run to this day. But it's a trade-off, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I'm not really in a position to complain because, you know, there's knowledge and there's understanding. You get the understanding after you've experienced it. Yeah. And the fact that I'm only 42 with a whole gang of music in me, and I understand I'm up against this this false narrative that music or hip-hop in particular is a young person's game. And my, my thing is hip hop is a young music. Absolutely. So, so like if all of these, if my, if my elders knew that as much as we love their old classics, if they continue to make dope shit to that standard, they could tore off of that dope shit. Mm-hmm. Like for example, that's why like for me, Master Ace is one of the greatest artists of all time. Love Master Ace, yeah. Because not only do you have his whole Juice Crew era discography, but he never stopped being dope. Yeah, and yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, disposable and he got, he arts. Got, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like mind. if you never heard of the Juice Crew, if you never heard of any of that stuff, and you just got on board at disposable arts. You'd still be like, okay, let's roll. You know, so none of that would matter. You know you, what I'm saying? You know what I think the biggest issue with a lot of like hip hop shit is that I, I thought of this the other day that hip hop artists have to stop thinking of themselves as rappers and they have to start thinking of themselves as jazz musicians. 
because not even jazz musicians, just musicians. Well, like, fair like enough. Willie Nelson can tour. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's nobody's mad at Willie Nelson for putting out new well, music. Well, I, I say <laughs> I say jazz in a sense of I say jazz in a sense of there's something about rock shit that you're still gonna be beholden to. You know, Paul McCartney put a new album out like a few months ago, and nobody gives a shit. They're basically like, I still want the Beatles. You know what I mean? Like, like, but yeah, so, but depending on the artist and the size, like mm-hmm. uh, the Specials just put out a new record. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, oh wow, I'm I'm looking at like Facebook sponsorship for a new specials record. So and it's wh- like, huh? So is it is it <laughs> is it just something specific? Well, I think like with hip hop, it's such a there's such this high <clears throat> this Highlander mentality where it's basically like you know the there can only be one where hip hop kind of eats as young where it doesn't allow right. for people to to really grow up in the right. Culture. And I think part of that is because it came up as a competitive genre mm-hmm. in terms of like battle culture mm-hmm. and just in terms of like hip-hop in general not just the music but battle culture is like you know considering that the activities that led to dance music emceeing djing and even graffiti were alternatives to uh gang violence mm-hmm. which is in, an, in essence team sport competitive just deadly right yeah yeah so now we're going to take this team sport competitive nature and make it less deadly and make it more artistic. And eventually it's become going to become a means of profit, which now enhances the competitive nature even more. Then there's always that element. You know what I'm saying? So when you learn, like, when someone like me with a fascination for martial arts learns the difference between, like, say, do and jitsu, yeah. Where like you do something for for competition, or you do something to be you know to to you know to to be able to defend yourself, or you do something to like for the purpose of maiming and killing, right? So mm-hmm. it's like when you can take a martial art and focus on the art and not so much the martial, and it becomes less about the competition with others and more about the competition with yourself and defeating yourself, mm-hmm. defeating your lesser self then you don't worry so much about what other people are doing. But to a, to a large degree, hip-hop, the way it reflects society at large, and specifically the black community, combined with all of the trauma of the African diaspora, you got that element in there, for better or worse, where people are convincing themselves that they're too old to do something or that they're too this or too that to do something, when in actuality... Do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> That's right. hip hop. There's nothing more hip hop than doing, doing whatever the fuck you want. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not I can't sit here and 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 explain to everybody that, you know, this battle you're having with others is really just a reflection of what you feel about your own shortcomings. <laughs> yeah. But if you would just just take a step back from everything that's happening and the way it's happening and decide how would I do it if I could do it any way I wanted to and then just do that, then you have DJs like Jazzy Jeff that are still touring the world doing whatever the fuck they want. You have the best of the new generation like the the Kendrick Lamars and the J. Coles putting out music doing whatever the fuck they want. Whereas if you look back on, say, Jay-Z's or Nas's discography, you might find yourself wondering 
if they made this music because of what was in their heart, Nasty or did they pick this production? Yeah, did they pick, did, they, did they pick this production or these singles based on what they felt would be the most successful? Yeah, and you can't knock the hustle, literally. Yeah, but it's like, <laughs> you know, now it's like, as a as a fan, a lot of times one of my biggest critiques of my favorite artists were, I wish they would do, not even the same shit. But I wish they would do the shit that felt like they were doing whatever the fuck they wanted yeah. instead of the shit that fit in with everybody else. Because everybody else is trying to be them anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think <laughs> you know I think saying? I think a lot of artists end up, you know, um overthinking the room. You know what I'm saying? Where right. where where you should just do what feels good. And my thing is like I think when I look back at like Jay Z's blueprint and why it resonated with me. And I thought about it. I said, like, you know, you know what made it dope or made it successful to me was it was basically Jay saying publicly, all right, I'm a big artist, so I don't have to get the biggest name producers. I can get people that make dope shit that y'all don't know about and still make the record successful. And so, like, mm-hmm. he, he put a Just Blaze on there. He put a Bink on there. He put an unknown Kanye on there. And he basically... And look what happened. Absolutely. He basically <laughs> made a, a, a underground hip-hop album commercially. That was mm-hmm. that was it. Like, you look at Lil Wayne, been rapping with Cash Money since he was 14 on all these mm-hmm. Manny Fresh beats. The Carter, I don't know if it's part one or part two, was basically him rapping over beats that New York niggas would listen to. Like, there was just this mm-hmm. level of, I'm just going to do what I want. And then as soon as they did that, everything kind of shifted, you know? And it's right. like... When I think when I think about like my wish list of 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 stuff that I've always wanted as a hip hop fan, it's always everybody always want a Primo record and a Pete Rock record, right? Right. Like, and you can cross that off your list. Like, okay, I'm done. You've done both. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that working with them? Any any stories about how y'all caught up? Was it like were y'all in the studio? Or was it like sending the beat over? Like, how how was that process for those? Those the processes were very different for both. Mm-hmm. Uh, very memorable. Uh, the one cool thing I'll say about doing the best part with Premier, mm-hmm. the song that is, um, we were waiting for a long time for the beat. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> and like, this was, I wouldn't say peak. I don't know what Premier's peak is. I mean, like, but he was very, very much sought after at the time. Rightfully mm-hmm. um, so. And like, I didn't know where I was on the waiting list or, you know, you would hear songs come out mm-hmm. and then it'd be like, oh, okay. And then like, and mind you, this was all while I was work. I was at London Payday mm-hmm. and Payday, the, the guy that ran Payday was managing uh premiere at the time. Oh, wow. You know, Patrick Moxie and um, his assistant, uh, SK Honda, Sarah Honda, you know, who was working closely with London Records, Allison Pember, and you know, we used to, we were kind of tight. Like we were just, I would I'll be I'd always be up in the office just hanging out, just like you know, boom boom whatever. Not there was never like a sense of you know where the hell is my beat or how long is this gonna take. It was just more like, ooh, this is coming, I can't wait. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like like whatever. Because mind you, you gotta remember, this is all. I'm like 17, 18, 19. This is all house money to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite literally. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, um, just one day, Sarah hits me up like, yo, 
I need you to come by. Premier dropped off the beat, and we want to make sure you like it. <laughs> like, so word. Got, you know, <laughs> what are you going to say? What are you going to say? You know what? I don't know. Nah. <laughs> nah, but it's like you go and you're like, man, I don't know what I'm about to hear. I'm just excited, right? Mm. And then she plays the beat, and I'm just like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's the one. That's cool. And like the fact that. You know, it's, it's at least the way it was told to me was like a Hanzo sword. Like, like she said before she hit play, she was like, you know, he made this specifically for you. Wow. And I'm like, yeah. And you hear a little jug in the background, like, doo, 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 yeah. Doo. And I'm like, I've never heard that in a premiere song before, in a, in a Gangstar record before. You know, and yeah. I'm like, and you hear them drums, and you're like, yeah, that's primo. And then you know, what I'm saying like, you hear the bass line, it's like, and then that that. I don't really even know how to describe it, but that that kind of them cinematic elements. Yes. That are like you have to really break down what combination of instruments is happening, <laughs> but yeah. it, it seems to always feel the same way with a premiere with a premiere beat, but it's always different combinations of, of, of instruments. And like I, I, this is clearly a string, maybe a vibraphone. Uh, <laughs> this is a kazoo. Like, like right, right. Like all of these things are making this particular chord, but there's like the signature premiere sound to it, and it happens because of the way, like the swing of the drums. It's like I can, you know, what I'm saying I could go on for days off of that one beat, you know. And so then like, were you in the studio look, to record look, look, it with but them? Then, but look, here's the thing. But then like, you hear the beat, and then like, Black Star. Oh no! Or most deaf mathematics would drop, mm. and it's like, oh, he must have like this was around the same batch. Mm. Oh, so this came out, and then that came out, and so like as a consumer from the outside, you're like, he's just running to Boston in a in a space game. <laughs> but to the <laughs> to the artist, you're like, you're like, yeah, he made that queen of spades for me. He made that yeah. jack of spades for this guy. He made that ace of spades for that guy. So it was amazing. And then like, you know doing it in headquarters. You know what I'm saying? Before it was headquarters. What was it? Oh, man. Why am D I drawing D &D a blank? D&D Studios. D&D, thank you. And I know headquarters is named after headquarters. Rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Who was actually on the skit in Don't Play because I was interviewing everybody outside of Fat Beats. Wow. And he was one of those people that was there. But like, man, you know, like all that history just from asking me about one song. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's not even to speak to you know, meeting him at D and D and recording the vocals with Eddie Sancho and then waiting to hear, you know, or breaking down the idea for the hook and then going off to to a European tour and coming back to what he ends up doing to it. And it's like that's really that really drove home the difference between a beat maker and a producer. Yeah. Because and I try to break this down in my classes and my workshops, a beat maker has a combination of a composer who's writing the music and a musician who's playing the music and an engineer who's facilitating the, uh, the instrumentation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A producer has to take those three roles and supervise them and facilitate them in a certain direction. So every, every beat maker is a composer and a musician and an engineer, but not every beat maker is a producer Word. because Unless you're facilitating the vocals, unless you're facilitating the direction of the song, like I said, you could take, you could put, you know, Quincy Jones and Dr. Dre, mm -hmm. 
in two identical studios with the same musicians and the same sheet music, and the song's going to come out totally different. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That's the difference between a, a beat maker and a producer. So to be able to trust him to just listen to my idea and turn that into the hook was like, man, that was that was special, you know? Side so note, did you see that Quincy documentary on on Netflix? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah that shit's pretty Yeah, incredible. I did. It was amazing. Oh, man. I learned a lot just watching that. I might watch it again. <laughs> you know what? I might pull it back out. How, how was your... Um, Got to. How was your Pete Rock experience? How did that go? That was dope just in the sense that, like, before I got Pete Rock on the album, it actually, we went through Grap. Ah, word. Because Grap Lover was kind of from the DMV, or had, like, a lot of people in the DMV. And I can't remember, somehow on Seven Heads... We linked up through Grab, um, and Grab had like a bunch of different stuff that ended up being them. That's not and Vampire Hunter J. Mm-hmm. And then he gave me a Pete Rock beat tape. Wow! I was like, "Yo, you know, Pete, Pete's down if you want to check some stuff out." And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Everything was fire. Everything was fire." You know what I'm saying? But then, like. When I met when I met with Pete at the studio, we actually went down and he played a, a gang of stuff out the Jeep, and it was like all dope. But I was stuck on what I heard on the tape, so yeah. I was like, "Yo, all of this is amazing, but I want to take that joint." And he was like, "That one?" I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "But I made that in like, was like I made that in like seven years ago, like you know what I'm saying?" I'm like. To myself, I'm thinking... It's new to me, nigga. This sounds like <laughs> my favorite P-Rock and CL Smooth beat. Word. From, like, the wig out to mm-hmm. all sold out. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, man, don't get me started. That's 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 my stuff right there. Like, like that. The all sold out EP, you know what I'm saying? Oh, come on. And um, Mecca and the Soul Brother. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yo, the, 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 the production, like, the, like to the wig out, uh, for Pete's sake, uh, all of that stuff, man. But... So the fact that I had that kind of, it had that kind of feel, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We kind of just ran with that. And then, you know, putting Asheru and Probe on there was like just kind of a dream come true just because it's like, yo, I'm working with artists I grew up listening to and artists that are my contemporaries at the same damn time. <laughs> you know yo, what I'm saying? Yo. Like I'm bringing them together. Shout out like to- Like on the upgrade. Hmm? I was gonna say shout out to Ash Rule and um I remember the Unspoken Heard record really blew my fucking yeah. mind. It was just a Big great record. pocket of stuff because I remember that and then the uh the No Edge Ups in South Africa project. Like I was yep. I was all I was all all over all that shit. And that was the stuff that yeah. was just feeding my soul. And and I think Master Ace's disposable art came out around that same time. So that was like a mm-hmm. really great pocket of of really dope independent hip hop. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like the Forrest Gump for indie hip hop. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> dead ass, yo. Because I was around for so many different iterations and eras of it. You know what I'm saying? Like you could line up each generation of independent hip hop that I've kinda had an album in. Yeah. And line up the contemporaries. Yeah. And it's almost like fudge from higher learning. Like, how long have you been in this school? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, are you ever going to graduate? Like, I've been here. Like, I could drop names off of Raucous. Mm-hmm. 
I could drop names off of mellow music mm. that should be like, where are they now? Mm-hmm. And I've been around through both. Well, do you think that you're, you've lasted this long because your approach to it was basically like, you know what? I'm I'm in school. I'm going to teach this. This is cool to do music, but it's not going to, it's not going to define me. No, I stopped teaching in 2002. Mm. I haven't taught. Like people still think I'm 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 like in the board of ed to this day, and it's like I taught from. <laughs> Nigga, I, you was a principal. I graduated. <laughs> I graduated in '98, mm-hmm. and I put out you know all of the, like the best part came out properly in 2000, mm-hmm. and all of the above came out properly in 2002. Well, excuse me, the best part came out properly in 2001, and I was like I left the board of ed then and been doing music full time for better or for worse ever since. And it's been tumultuous, mm. <laughs> but, you know, being a full-time uh, uh, MC, but, you know, that's kind of like the the misunderstanding. Like I teach through my music. Absolutely. And I teach on stage and I teach backstage and I teach in headphones and I teach through speakers and I teach in podcasts now and I teach in workshops and, and speaking engagements. But, yeah, like, you know, if I, I used to joke that when I was done rapping, I would go back to teaching <laughs> just because I'm good at it. I mean, but it's you, like, you're teaching I'm now, not, shit. I'm, yeah, like, I'm not going to be done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like rapping has allowed me to, to, to teach overseas. Wow. You know? You know, so, you know, the crazy thing is this, that I feel like the shift is changing now where, you know, I've, I've lectured, um, about the relationship between hip hop culture and and the civil rights movement, I was a part of a study that was presented to Harvard. Like all this type of stuff, where hip hop now is being taken seriously. And the thing about it is, we've always known it, but it's one of those things where you have like the institutions now are trying to figure out, like, oh, we need to pay attention to this. So this is something that Ninth Wonder oh, yeah. told me. Ninth Wonder told me this shit, and it blew my mind. So when he was doing his fellowship at Harvard. He said uh-huh. that they're taking him all all through Harvard. I think it was like a a museum in there. And this lady takes him uh-huh. in this back room. She says, I want to show you something. And there's this huge vault thing where you got to twist the thing and open it up. And she, he said, the lady pulls this thing out that's like five inches of glass. Yeah, I imagine it looks like Hogwarts in there. It, it's, it's insane, <laughs> right? It's been there since yeah. the 1600s. And it's like, he said, she pulls out this thing within five, six inches of glass and pulls it out of this big thing. And she says to him, this is one of the rough drafts of the Gettysburg Address when Abraham Lincoln is trying to sketch that shit out. Be like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to fuck these niggas up with this one, you know. And she takes right. that and she puts it back down. Right next to that, she pulls out another six-inch piece of glass and she pulls it up. And it's a flyer to one of um, one of the first Who uh, Hurt concerts in New York. Right. Dollar parties, yeah. And she said... <laughs> She said to us, "This is just as important as the Gettysburg Address." Yeah, and that shit yeah. blew my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and then it makes it it makes it make sense where you can be like, "Oh, this culture that I was born into and grew up, I can make a living out of it." Where it doesn't right. have to be, "Well, I got to sell records. I can go and right. do other things. I can lecture. I can do podcasts. I can I can me, teach." You know. For me, it's like this culture that I've made an indelible mark on. Mm-hmm. That's like even more, you know what I'm saying? But like, all right, so here's here's a funny thing, right? Mm. Here's a funny thing. Yeah. Way, like, I don't remember how far back, probably early 2000s. 
someone, um, a student, a Harvard student at the time, I can't remember his name, uh, interviewed me for like some kind of dissertation they were working on mm-hmm. and then followed up and had me come do a speaking engagement. Right. Yeah. And then later that year, like they had like nominated me for some kind of award. So I think through the speaking engagement or what have you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't remember what I was going through at the time, probably relating to my marriage or whatever the hell. But I was in such a toxic place that I couldn't even I couldn't even accept it. I wouldn't even go up and like and accept it and speak because I was just like, nah. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like in terms of I just say that as a lesson of, and I carry that with me in a, as a lesson in self worth, just in terms of. The things that you're living in in the moment and the thing that the contributions that you're making, not just to society at large, but to the people around you are so valuable, you know, on a, on a, on a small scale and a grand scale, you know, because I mean, if you really want to think about what anything is worth in the grand scheme of where we are in the galaxy, then, then yeah, nothing matters. Yeah. Right. But, <laughs> but in, the, in the grand scheme of, the life in front of you through your senses, right? Yeah. Everything is so valuable. But the first thing, the most important thing is your own sense of self, you know? Because this isn't like, you know, I wasn't just some 85er walking around. This is me, full grown, you know, 120 knowing, the knowledge of self having, name changing, God calling. Mm-hmm. Like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like you're human, you know, and, and you can look at that as like, oh, we're only human, or we're, we're human. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, we you know? We, we hit the uh, the lottery. You know, right, right, right. So, so here's my I question. Think, here's yeah, yeah. um, you know, doing doing music for so long. Um, I know it can. I know sometimes, like you know, people talk about writer's block, and and you go through those moments where you just don't feel like creating new shit and doing new stuff. Mm-hmm. You got mm-hmm. some new music out now. What yep. what was the thing? Tell us, tell tell the listeners what you have out and what motivated you to do new material and and what how does this stick out to you versus the rest of your catalog? There's an EP out right now. My my latest EP came out last fall or last winter or I guess it was right between fall and winter of 2018. It's called Lose No Time, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, songs that I've been working on for a while, and I actually had. Uh, plans to put them out on another label with a different producer doing the production. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, those things kind of just stalled and, and delayed and hemmed and hard and excuse me, you end up waiting and waiting and waiting. And I'm like, no, no, this is not, this is not how we do. I want to put this out so that people can hear it. I want to put this out to get it off my chest. I want to put this out to, uh, to respect my own process and value the work that I do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it came out dope. <laughs> like really, really, really dope. I'm really, I'm super proud of every song just in terms of what I was thinking when I started writing it, what I was thinking on the old production of it and what I was thinking in terms of the direction that I took it and put it out on. And, you know, like you gotta, you got this one song called get it where I'm doing it's kind of like a bragging rights type of routine where I'm backspinning while I rhyme. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit more of a complicated backspin. I was talking to, to Rob Swift about the difference between 
beat juggling, juggling and backspinning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he, he pointed out some things that's kind of like, okay, Sifu, I'll go back to, I'll go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but in terms of like, you know, being that dude when it comes to backspinning while I rhyme, uh, this song called Get It, where not only is, is that going on, but I'm telling a very layered story and I'm using different parts of the song and then I'm like creating a new, like basically I'm doing what I would have done on a sampler, but on the turntables. Word. Wow. And I'm like, I'm looking back on that song like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> you know, but then there's a song called Montage Music that, you know, my peoples have already hit me back that it's like on some RBG Fit Club, like this is <laughs> this gets you hype, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a song called oh, I Can't Get Enough where I'm talking about a specific relationship where, you know, sometimes and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that this is uh I must I'm gonna say that this 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 phenomenon is gender neutral where someone is so attached that they're just pressing you for your time and you can't you can't even love them right because they're, they're pressing you for your time so much that yeah. you don't want to spend as much time with them if they would just you know geek down absolutely <laughs> but then you break up and it's like damn I miss them yeah. <laughs> so the song starts off like the hook the hook goes from uh, she loved me so much she hate me she can't get enough she want more so she loved me so much she left me I can't get her back I need more you yeah, know what I'm saying absolutely. so like just playing with that um. I mean, I'm, I'm real, real proud of the ETF. So it's called Lose No Time, and it's a Bandcamp exclusive. Like, it's only available there. Um, I have the means to put everything on the streaming platforms like everybody else does. But I am sectioning off a piece of my work to be strictly download-based or, or physical purchase-based or ownership-based as opposed to renting music through uh, through Tidal and Spotify and iTunes. Yeah. So It's interesting you said that because I was reading an article that said this is the first generation of kids where they don't own shit anymore. They just own access. Right. They own access to shit. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, fuck your DVD collection. I have access to Netflix. You know, fuck my records. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting approach because that was the shit we would brag about. We would brag about the stuff that we've collected. We would brag about our music right. collections. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but but you know what though? That kind of technology paved the way for access. Like this is the information age. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like we went from the industrial revolution to the service revolution to now the information revolution to where okay, if everything is an open book test, now it's more about what do you do with it? <laughs> I swear. It's, more, it's not about it's not about access to the information. The yeah. information everybody has access to the same information now. What are you gonna do with it? Yeah, I swear I was literally talking about this on the intro for this interview where, you know, there's this book and I forgot the name of the book, but the the concept of it was this is a time where we have the most access to most information ever. But mm-hmm. but as a result, people are less skilled. So like a hundred years ago, you might not have had access to all this information in a rural area, but if you knew how to be a fucking blacksmith, you knew how to be a blacksmith. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like I had this reoccurring dream that I had to have some type of surgery 
and some doctor got my chest cracked open and they put me, you know, put me under, but they didn't give me enough sleeping gas. And I wake up in the middle of it and you hear the doctor saying, oh, shit, I forgot how to do this. And somebody says, pull this, pull it up on YouTube. <laughs> you, right. You know what I'm saying? And but so, yo, that's, that's a couple things, though. Like, when you talk about the debate now between college versus trade school, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Liberal arts versus a very specific uh, study, you know, or major. Mm-hmm. When you think about, like, is, you know, like the whole hustle of the education system that you have to go into debt for. Yeah. And it's like, all right, if I'm going into debt for it, then I need a certain return on investment. And if I need a return on investment, I need to go, I need to base how much I'm spending versus what the job market is. And if I'm spending enough to make myself specific in the, in the job market, you just got to ask, like, what's it all really worth if you're not happy with what you're doing? Yeah. Like, whatever you're going to do is going to take work. And you can work hard or you can work smarter. You can do both or you can do neither. <laughs> but, the, the, you know, at the bottom line, if, you, if, you find, if you're able to find something that you enjoy doing <laughs> – whether you whether it speak whether it fulfills you or not, whether it's your passion or not, if you can just manage to enjoy doing it, you'll do it well, and you, that 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 speaks to your quality of life, you know. So like to what you're saying, like we have all the information, but not as much skill. Well, depends on who you're talking to. Some people will take all the information and acquire a specific skill. Some people will say, okay, well, I don't need this particular skill. I can outsource this skill because everybody has the information. Yeah. So it's like there's, there's really no wrong answer unless you're not happy with what it is you're doing. I, I feel like I just really want people to – I think people don't know how to use information nowadays. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like – like I'll give you an example. Like I was reading something that was kind of funny to me where – there was like a, a Facebook post and it said, you know, Angela Bassett makes history by being the first female voice on a Transformers movie. And I'm like, word, is that history? <laughs> is that history? <laughs> you know? It's like, no, she might've been the first person to do that, but that's not history. And people think well, that statistics is having like the ability to look all this stuff up and then try mm-hmm. to like force some type of meaning behind it. But it's no meaning behind any of that shit. Oh, but there is though. For me, like the meaning behind that particular stat mm. would not be Angela Bassett breaking ground. Mm. It would be, it took this long for <laughs> motherfuckers <laughs> to realize that a woman could be a voice of a transformer. Like whenever, whenever there's like a, a, a black person or a woman or a person of color that breaks this barrier, yeah. like, like with the award shows and stuff, the accolade is great for the person in question, but it's really damning to the institution yeah. in question. Shame I mean. on, shame on them. <laughs> I mean, it literally happened last night. Like Sandra O oh, like, yeah. uh, just like broke a barrier last night. So yeah, it's like my goal Chris Rock said this, and I thought this was pretty brilliant. He's basically like, you know, baseball was integrated in 1947, but baseball wasn't equal until the 70s. And he said it wasn't equal until the 70s because that's when you started to see shitty black baseball players. And he's like, that's true. He's like, (laughs) that is true equality where you have the right to suck just like everybody else. So it's right. like back in the day, if you was the black player on the team, you had to be doper than the motherfucker. <laughs> you right. know what I'm saying? Taking the best of the Negro League for yeah, the worst exactly. of the MLB. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Chris Rock also said um, he's one of the foremost stand-up comedians in the industry. Mm. 
and it's put him in a place in society where he can move next door to a white dentist. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He, he's like, he's like, he's like, <laughs> like he's I got to be the best <laughs> to live with the average. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, like that's just kind of like, <laughs> it just lets you know that's, that's literally the sign, the, the marker for inequality. It's yeah. like, I, yeah, he said, what does it really take for me to, you know, like what they said, they got to gotta be twice as good to get half as far. Pretty much. He said this. What did he say? He said that, like, his neighborhood, there's, like, four black people. It's him, Mary J. Blige, uh, right. uh, uh, <laughs> Patrick Ewan, maybe Gary Sheffield. And he said, so you got, And their like, neighbor is a dentist. Yeah, the white guys are dentists. He's <laughs> in order for you to be a, de- a black dentist in my neighborhood, you had to have invented teeth. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Right, which is, which is which is real. That shit is that shit is real, and we don't we don't think about it. You know what I mean? But it's like it's it's in plain sight. So it's like a lot of that stuff. It's like I don't need to be reminded of a lot of this stuff because like that stuff is already there. But you know, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. Where when people break a barrier, we're so excited about something being the first. Like when Black Panther came out, it was so exciting. But then you say to yourself, "Why the fuck did it take so long?" You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, so yeah, man. I I think shit. I think we talked a lot. We talked about an hour. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna uh, uh, plug or promote or say or get something off your I chest? I will say um, you can find everything you need to about me at realjlive.com. Uh, all my social media platforms are realjlive, uh, and I'm, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to to have people still care about what I say on and off record and um you know I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> word them up, word them up. I, I appreciate it, man. Uh we need to do something, so uh, you know, send me some beats. Um <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> uh I guess that's it. This is the Negro League Podcast. I go by the name of Preach Jacobs. You can check me out at Preach Jacobs on Instagram, Mo Better Soul on Instagram. And once again, go to MoBetterSoul.bitcartel.com. Enter code Negro to save ten percent on your next motherfucking order, motherfucker. Um, and like I said at the beginning, we're going to play my new song after all of this. Uh, with Tall Black Guy, a song called Gifted People. Hope y'all enjoy. Shout out to my man Jay Live. Thank y'all for listening. Peace. Peace. is a very strange thing. Sometimes it just happens like a light. And I remember getting uh, a feeling, uh, a feeling in, in my body. And I said, that's it. That's it. To be young, gifted, and black. That's all. And sat down at that moment and made up a tune. It did, and it just flowed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yo, black hat, black hat, black hoodie, man. Can't scare a fucking monster with the boogie, man. How you dare? I'm on rooftop, who's hot? Say the wrong thing, like, get your roof hot. I'm a Garvey, I move army, like, take whatever comes. Got a pump for the trunk, the dumb dumbs, so you dumb dumbs. They say we ain't beautiful because we come for slums. They say we're mental savages, below the averages. If you didn't stop before the middle passages, words are weak, straight to action. It's no revolution without ratchets. Return, I ain't never left. When you take what's yours, then it's never theft. It's a pan African hook activist. We need more rights, let's pass the uh, Young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, young gifted. They hating on the God cause he black and lifted. Like, young brother, black and gifted. They hating on the on your Louis V, I'm on my Huey P, 9mm mix with Schooly D, they call it black magic, better than y'all, than my worst day, gifted like a birthday, uh, reaching higher than the ceiling of heaven, Carolina, every black man considered a felon, I consider your kings and I tell them, save yourself, ain't no rescues, get the burner if you touch their nephews, ran in the bray, blow up kings, handsome and slay, make the world better, tell them, think it happened, it's before you think of the cheddar, every rhyme I write is love letters to their ancestors, I tell them, I'm black as fuck, plus the gat is tough, the end is here, grab your can goods, they traded MAGA hats for clan hoods, yeah. Go, go, go.